Good morning, folks. Thank you for joining me. I'm not going to have a bad day because my coffee mug says so. And it's 7 a.m. I'm onto second coffee already. And uh, ding dong, who's at my door? No, none other than Jennifer Batten. Hey, Jen. Hey, how how's it down under? It is good. It is good. It's um, supposedly winter, but I live in a place called the Gold Coast, which is surfing beaches and, and stuff. So it might get a little bit cold at night, but we don't really get a winter. It's great. Jen, I've been listening to your, your CDs last night and I am blown away. Um, oh, I've, known, I've known you as being the, the, the side woman to Michael Jackson, Jeff Beck, etc. But listening to that, it's not your standard, you're playing on the CDs, it's not the standard rehashed blues licks played really fast as a lot of cliched guys are. It's more textures and a lyrical kind of, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just amazing. I was so surprised. I want to ask you, how did the love of, love affair with the guitar start out for you? What got you started? Uh, jealousy. That's jealousy. Yeah, my sister had a guitar and I didn't. And I thought, she gets everything. <laughs> wow. So, uh, between that and the Beatles. There was a serious Beatlemania in my town. I, I asked my dad if uh, the next Christmas if I could get a guitar of my own, and I got it, and it was electric, which was wow. very unusual back then. Yeah. Cool. This is Elvis, by the way. His head would be popping up a little bit here and hey, there. Hey, Elvis. <laughs> uh, you just happened to look right up the camera then, too. <laughs> so you started on electric. Funnily enough, I jumped straight into electric as well, um, after only strumming on a classical for a couple of months. And I'm really glad I did because it gave me a good grounding on playing Shadows music. Um, mm. What type of stuff did you start out on? Oh, gosh, I was eight years old. So it was lessons at the local music shop, learning to to read and learn the, the, the first three frets, learn the notes on the board. Um, I, I didn't learn anything hip for a couple of years, I don't think. <laughs> I recall it was it was just nose to the grindstone in the Mel Bay books or Alfred guitar books. Yeah, it, yeah. it's funny that seems to be a, a common thing with everybody that I'm talking to is that they start out playing folk music pretty much, uh, just you know strumming away, and then something comes along that really inspires them to get into the into the rock music. Um, mm. What was that moment for you? You know, I, I went through, well, it was actually fortunate that the family moved a couple times because every time we moved, I got a different teacher. So <clears throat> we moved from New York to California, and my first teacher was uh, a folk finger picker. So I got that technique together, and then the next guy was into blues, next guy was into rock. So I had a, a, a lot of variety in the things that I was learning. But, you know, the culture that I was listening to was – um, either Motown kind of stuff on the radio or rock pop. And uh, just having that stuff in your ears makes you want to play it. Cool, cool. Now, you said you, you did learn you know, just the, the notes on the first fret and a, and a bit of reading and stuff. Is that something that's carried on for you now? Do you, do you still read? Uh, not, not very well. Uh, most guitar players are not good readers. 
uh, not not like horn players because there's so many choices of where to put your fingers and you just kind of have to look ahead and make those decisions like what part of the neck is going to serve you for the next eight bars that kind of stuff i i did a lot of it when i was in guitar school and tommy tedesco who was a an amazing session guy he taught our sight reading course and wow. I, I tell you what it was so valuable because he would bring in charts that he was doing in the studio that day or something that stood out in the last couple of weeks. And I will never forget, he brought a chart in one time that I looked at it and I thought, hmm, I can nail this easy. So he did a count off. We all played it. I nailed it. And then he goes, now here's what you might run into in the studio. And he said, we're going to play this again. And when we did, he played a counter rhythm that knocked us all off our chairs. Wow. So that made me scared of studio work. I thought, oh, Jesus. And another wonderful thing he did, he, he was such a punk. He was like the punk of the studios. He would bring us two at a time to his sessions and didn't ask permission or anything. He just We just came with him. And when I went, he was doing the film score to Roots Part 2 uh, movie series and we walked in and it was a full orchestra with, I want to say, 20 violinists and just a huge room. And we just sat with him while he went to town. And I'll never forget, uh, they did a take or, or maybe a rehearsal. And the conductor asked him to use a different guitar. And he said, sure. And he put down his guitar and then picked up the same one again. You've heard that, I see. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm friends with a chap named Louis Shelton, who was also a, a part oh. of the, the whole uh, Wrecking Crew scene, and sure. he has told me very similar stories about Tommy as well, and just picking up the same guitar. Um, yeah, so I have heard this before. <laughs> Great. Well, they say that, that studio work is ninety percent boredom, ten percent uh, sheer terror, and uh, I think he picked up the being a punk from just being bored because he, he did sessions day and night for mm. decades. Mm. So most of them are going to be pretty boring. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you said at, at guitar school, was that, um, did, was that GIT? Did you go to Musicians yeah. Institute? Yeah. <clears throat> I was in the third class they ever had in, uh, graduated in 1979. Wow. Yeah. They were heavy into recruiting at that time and it was not the international school it is now. And it was a hell of a lot cheaper. <laughs> did you go on to do some teaching there as well? I did, yeah. Uh, I went there and I, the school is in LA or in Hollywood and I lived in San Diego. So I, I slept in a friend's garage for the year that I was there. Went back to San Diego and eventually everybody said, you've got to be in LA, you've got to be in LA, you know, long before the internet. You just got to be there physically. Yep. So yeah, I moved back and... My first job was a security guard from midnight to eight while I was trying to get enough students in the afternoon, and I just was not sleeping. It was brutal. And finally, um, actually, Scott Henderson went on the road, and they said they needed to fill some space. So they, they hired me to come in and teach, and I taught there quite a bit. Wow. Very cool. It, and that those living living tough stories seem to be quite co common, the uh, suffering sure. for your art isn't it you've it's just got to be done <laughs> well yeah i don't there's not too many musicians that they're born with a golden spoon right or silver spoon where they just um okay school's done 
let's get the million dollar record deal. You just got to be on stages and stages and stages for the most part and just build up your confidence for one. So you become the identity that is within you rather than copying things that you learn. It, it takes a while, I think, to, to um, just bring in all that you're learning and all that you're listening to into the gray matter and then filter it out into your own personality. Absolutely. You know, I, I actually, I remember um, telling the president of GIT at the time when it was graduation time that I would have my own record in a year. That I really thought that would happen, and it was 10 years. Wow, wow. So a lot of people would know you from playing for Michael Jackson, Jeff Beck. What was the, the gap between studying at GIT and landing the gig with Michael Jackson? Was there a couple of little stepping stones along the way to that, or did that come sure. pretty soon oh, afterwards? Sure. Oh, it, it was, well... Relatively, it was pretty quick. I, I mean, I graduated in 79 and, and got the Jackson gig in 87. In the meantime, I did a whole lot of teaching. What was, it's a really great thing to do because when you have to regurgitate the things that you've learned, it just solidifies it in your mind. Plus, you have to figure out how to communicate. If you've got a student that's not getting it, you have to figure out a way that they will get it, whether it's a visual thing or the words that you're saying. Um, so that's really valuable. And I needed stage hours. My God. I mean, I would have fallen on my face if I graduated and immediately went to Jackson. <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. I years of um, doing cover band material. Because when you do that, you're playing top 40 hits, and it's, it's like you have to be a forensic scientist to figure out the style of 40 different guitar players and figure out the tones that they got on the records. And uh, just all that education really leads up to Michael Jackson essentially was a cover band, but all the covers were by the same guy. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> and so, absolute amazing music to play as well. So oh, when yeah. you were teaching, what kind of things did you think were really important for guitar players to be learning that, the standard teacher probably wouldn't touch on was I know there's certain things with young kids that I teach that I see a gift in. I think, Oh, I can't give this guy to somebody else because they're going to take him down this road. And I know that's not for him. Did you ever find that come up yourself in teaching? Uh, yeah, actually recently, uh, I mean, you get all kinds of people when you're teaching and I, I went for many years without teaching at all. And, then the digital age happened. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> all that time I used to take to write out things, I go, just get out your phone. Just let me play it down and we can get more content in the time. And I get, I, I find a lot of times adults, maybe late 20s, 30s and on, uh, they are not the sponges that the teenagers are. Mm -hmm. So I prefer teenagers really because everything's new to them and they're into it. And Boy, when I get that energy, when I can tell somebody's into it and they're picking it up, it really fires me up. So I want to, you know, I'll be talking about all this stuff and then I'll spend another half hour after the lesson digging up links and check out this player, check out that player. And I recently got a student that came to me and uh, she's mainly an acoustic guitar player and she wanted to advance her chord knowledge. 
So I said, do you want to play something? And she did and knocked my socks off. Beautiful singer-songwriter, <clears throat> but typically with the singer-songwriters, it's very basic chords. Mm -hmm. And it can tend to get very samey. So I thought, ah, I, I really want to take her to the next level. Because there's not that many, uh, especially female guitar players, that are really knock it out of the park with interesting uh, progressions. Yeah. Cool. In fact, I, I, I heard a great concert. KT Tunstall did a thing for the Royal Albert Hall. They're doing a series that's a benefit because they're losing so much money called the Royal Albert Home. And Katie Tunstall is, has got such a, a wonderful voice, just perfect pitch, and some really interesting things with looping. And some of her songs harmonically will take me to places you don't expect. And that's, man, that's the entire package for me. Great. Well, it sounds like uh, anybody that's lucky enough to have had you as a teacher have scored somebody with a lot of different knowledge in a lot of different areas, just judging by all the different styles that, that you've learned along the way. So you're still teaching? I started up again, uh, especially now that we're locked down and we can't play for probably a year. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, for the first time I started doing Facebook Lives, and now I finally can simulcast to YouTube, a couple different Facebook pages, Periscope, wherever, at the same time. And so I've gotten a few students from that and uh, students from a um, – when I'm home, I would go to a, a local shop one day a week and so I got a couple of those that are not technophobes that will actually jump on zoom <laughs> so if people wanted to get lessons off you now are they able to contact you through your website or anything like that are you taking yep. people on yep cool okay Just click contact. yeah on uh, the website and I get the mail cool I'll put a little link uh, underneath the replay there so the big question Michael Jackson how did that come about how did you score that gig? Uh, really lucky. Uh, well, I had moved back to L.A., you know. <laughs> Everybody said, you got to be there, and in my case, I did. Um, <clears throat> uh, Musicians Institute started up a referral service. So they started getting calls for, we need a guitar player for this or that, or this band. And uh, so I, I was teaching there at the time, and it was an off day, actually, that the call came through, and the person running the referral service called me up on my cassette answering machine. That's what I had <laughs> in my, you know, and left several messages all excited. Like, I got a great audition for you. Call me back immediately. And the third message was, okay, I'm not, now I got to tell you who it is. It's Michael Jackson. Call me back. So, um, of course I got excited and, uh, a few days later I was able to go in and I, I had asked what songs they wanted me to know. And I, they gave me four or five songs, so I just stayed home and canceled everything and just did nothing but work on the songs nonstop. And when I went in, there was no band. It was basically just me and a video camera. Wow. And at that time, because of Van Halen and his solo pieces like Cathedral and Eruption and that, every single band in Hollywood had a, a, a guitar solo in, you know, during the night, during the set of whatever they were doing. And so I was comfortable with that. I was in five different bands at that time, and every single band I had a solo to play by myself. And um, so they, they started me out with 
the only guidance I was given was to play something funky because that would be what is re required for 95% of the show. And I, I played some stuff, some funk parts that I was teaching my students at the time. And I played also, I had learned every solo on Blow by Blow and, and Wired records by Jeff Beck. And there was one funky thing in there that I put in. Then I just started random improvising. And I also at the time had finished a three song demo for my first record. And Giant Steps was one of the tunes that I had worked out a two hand tapping solo to the John Coltrane song. So I played that. And then I ended with the Beat It solo because I had played that in a cover band. Cool. And that sounds pretty nerve wracking. I don't know how I'd go yeah. in a situation like that. It, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, if Michael was there, it you know I would have crapped myself. But you know, it was it was a very relaxed situation, and it, it was not a uh, cattle call where everybody was watching you. Everybody had time slots, like fifteen minutes, come in, and then you don't even see the other players. So it was. I, I felt pretty comfortable, but I would tell you, I didn't tell anybody that I had done that. And they called me several days later to come in and they said, Michael is interested, come down and play with the band and see how it goes. And next thing I knew, I had a, two months later, I had a ticket to Tokyo and a passport. Wow. Wow. So um, you had quite an identifiable look back then with the, the big hair and everything. Did you already have that prior to, to starting no. with Michael? No, that was all, now you need to look the part. That was Michael's vision, fortunately. Yeah, it was very fortunate because <clears throat> so many people were into the looks back then and it was all about the hair. And in fact, you would see ads for players for bands in the Hollywood uh, Music Connection magazine that would say, must have hair. You know, that was number one. You've yeah. got to have the look. Yeah. And I was pretty clueless in that regard. So I was just really lucky that he went for the music and knew that the look could be created. And he hired an artist for every performer on stage. And they drew up paintings of three different costumes and outrageous looks that definitely don't look like the girl next door. So I went about being transformed. Wow. Wow. Uh, I, I just actually remembered having a uh, guitar magazine with you on the front. It was Guitar Player Magazine and your side-on profile. Um, you, you'd know that the shot... Funnily enough, I went to school at the time with a girl named Jennifer Batten and everybody just could not believe I was walking around with this guitar magazine with yeah. Jennifer Batten splashed across the front and everyone would be looking at, at, at our Jennifer Batten going, no way, has the, what's the chances of that? <laughs> yeah, absolute classic. And if I remember right, you were, you were playing Ibanez back then, yeah? You know, funny enough, um, I had a Fender Strat before I got that gig, and I had wanted to get with Ibanez because that that company was putting so much money into artists. Mm. And Inside Cover, which was, I think at the time was $10,000 to do that. Wow. I mean, that's big money. Mm -hmm. And they were launching players into the stratosphere with that advertising. Frank Bali, Scott Henderson, a bunch of people. And I had wanted that, and I was working at a place in uh, the Valley in L.A. called Valley Arts Guitar. I had a Valley the, the Arts. Real, Beautiful guitar. Yeah. Really hit plays. Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenauer, all the session guys used to shop there. Oh! <laughs> That's the danger of live streaming. 
But that's cool. I'm going to stay right here and keep on talking until Jen comes back. And that shouldn't be too hard. But that's having a puppy dog on your lap that wants to take out the screen. So I'm just going to keep talking. Folks, I'm going to go through some of your messages. She's typing. That's okay. Uh, to see... we got Johnny Bean in the house. Uh, let me just message Jen there. Oh, she's back. If only I could work out how to accept. That's fine. I'll hit that little button there and Jen should be back. <laughs> the danger is real. The danger is real. Can you Do hear you, me? Yeah. 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 Can you see me now? I, I can. I'm just going to try my little switching and yep, there you are. You're, you're back. Uh, that was my dog jumping into the power cord. <laughs> I just explained that to people. You, you did say you had the, the, the dog there. and Yep. Well, you know let what? that be I, a lesson to me. Uh, you know, the whole live streaming thing was totally freaking me out. Right up until halfway into the episode I did with my friends from Tone Talk, uh, Mark and Dave. And I went into everything beforehand with questions prepared and all that. Halfway into that, I, I ran out of questions and I thought, I know these guys, we just started talking and they, and it was just so easy. Everything I've done since then has been really easy. And they said, man, people like a train wreck. People like a train wreck. It just shows them that, that it's real. So um, yeah, no, that, that's fine. Um, I'm just trying to recap where we were. I'm going to go over some questions here in the meantime. Sure. Uh, we've got Licia Louise is in the house. She's a fantastic uh, a guitar player, friend of mine. Um, and the guys from Tone Talk, Johnny Bean. Hey, guys. Nicholas from Norway. Uh, a lot of shout-outs of hellos. I'm just scrolling through to see. Here's a question for when it suits. Jennifer, how did you come down after those massive shows to be in a calm place for a good, for a good night's sleep? Or did that not happen? Ah... Uh. I, I've, I usually don't have trouble sleeping at, at all. Um, probably, you know, this was, Jesus Christ, 1987 was a lot, lot of years ago. So I don't, I don't recall having any insomnia problems. I, I certainly did when I got the gig. Uh, I had a real hard time sleeping. I would work till, I don't know, two in the morning working on the tunes and wake up at six for no reason, you know, yeah. <laughs> to the point where I, I actually went to a doctor and asked for sleeping pills because it was really messing me up. And the, the doctor, this is LA, right? The doctor thinks I'm a drug addict and I need to come down. And I go, dude, I just got the biggest gig on earth and I just can't sleep because I'm excited. But since then, it's, it's not a problem. I can sleep on planes, which is great. Not an issue, generally, yeah. except for jet lag. I mean, jet lag can kick my ass. I, I remember uh, when I went with Jeff back to Japan, we would, um, it was a drinking band. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, every night after the show, we'd have two bottles of champagne waiting for us and some orange juice. And it was, it was just really, really fun. And in Japan, I, I love sake. So I would drink sake every night. And, you know, I'd go to sleep at whatever time. The shows tend to be early there. So say I go to sleep at midnight or one and then I'd wake up at three because it's, it's the sugar in your system from the alcohol sure. that screws up your jet lag. And I'd be up till six in the morning, then sleep till 10. And then we had to go to another jump on a train or something. So 
that. It's funny. Um, I'm having been a musician all my life. I, I haven't really been much of a morning person, but since starting to do these, I wake up at the crack of dawn and I'm springing out of bed, going, "Today's cool. I'm talking to this guitar hero of mine or this guitar hero of mine," and. It's amazing who'll say yes if you go about it the right way and if you have a connection. And it's a yeah. small world, isn't it? Like uh, you, oh, you yeah. probably find that – I know for me, anyone I can think of is pretty much one degree of separation away. Sure. So do you think – have you placed a lot of emphasis just on building the right relationships over time? Do you, do you think that's a, a very important thing for people to do, just those connections, that networking, and just being – yeah. A good human. Uh, not, not, I haven't done it consciously. I, I was never really. I mean, I was just talking about drinking with Jeff Beck, right? I generally am not the party girl that likes to go out and party all the time. I, I was never in cliques. I'm just kind of a more of a hermit. Yeah. Um, so connections are just happen organically if they're going to yeah. happen. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think just being a good person gets you. A long way. I, I've seen stories of Ginger Baker was a classic. I saw a, a documentary on him recently. And man, you, yeah. you can be that level of drummer, but if you're a dick, no one wants to play with you. And that was a classic right there. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, you know, I I do tell students uh, that you know how do I get to the next level? I've been playing for X amount of years and playing in cover bands and whatever and um, I say t- number one, number one is your personality, really. And you got to understand if somebody is hiring you like a, a big tour, like a Jackson or a Beck, you are hired for a reason. You are hired to serve as part of the team. You know, of, of course you're important, but so is the tour manager. So y- you can't have an ego about it. And I, I told Jeff, man, when he first asked me if I wanted to play with him, I said, man, I, I will do it. I will do it for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and, and I mean, that was very sincere because I was such a fan anyway. But, um, you know, your, your intention and your vibe can be felt way beyond your words. And I I put in so many hours uh, programming guitar synth because that was my main job there. He was perfectly happy to have me play guitar, but I'm going, I've got 30 years with Tony Hymas, Jan Hammer, Max Middleton. Guitar tones are not going to cut it with these tunes. So I just, I spent all my time either programming or writing because he's got a voracious appetite for new tunes. And I was really, really into it. And I knew that fired him up because he doesn't always get that. And lots of musicians don't always get that. Yeah. You, you know, you got a good player, but they're, they'd rather be reading the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, you can feel that on stage. Yeah. So that, there has to be, you have to know your place, really. Who else was in the band say, in Jeff Beck when you were playing with him? Uh, Steve Alexander was the drummer. He He's a Welshman that played in Duran Duran, not the original, but um, yeah. he did several years with them. And Randy Hope Taylor, uh, I never remember the name. It's a really popular British band he was in, R&B kind of band. 
right. with the leader called Bluey. That's I remember the leader's name, not the band. Oh, Incognito was that okay. what is called? I think anyway. And then the second Jeff tour, it was Andy Gangadine on drums, um, and he, he would hate to be known for this, but he played with the Spice Girls. <laughs> you know, he, he was a pretty hip dude. Yeah, yeah. But, you, know, you wouldn't knock that gig back. I mean, yeah. So I think uh, before uh, your little puppy dog knocked your your camera over there, we were talking about guitars. We were talking about Ibanez being the big one at the time and how they were putting a lot of uh, money into promotion and everything. Um, I remember the, the, the Thomas McRocklin ads from back in the late 80s, and I've actually got Thomas on in a couple of days. I'm looking forward to talking to him. Um, what I remember of seeing you in the magazines there was you had the little flick-down thing to mute the strings um, so that you yeah. could do a lot of the, the two-handed tapping, yeah? Yep. How did that come about, your, your two-handed style? I was just looking around to see if I had one here. Um, oh, it, it came from being at GIT, and I had a classmate named Steve Lynch who ah. ended up in a band called Autographed. You know, Turn Up the Radio was a hit they had in the 80s. And every month we would get a seminar by different guitar monsters, you know, because we, we were in Hollywood, so all the session guys were there. We had Lee Rittenauer, Larry Carlton, uh, Pat Metheny came through on tour, and just the greatest of the greats. And one month it was um, Emmett Chapman who invented the Chapman stick. Cool. And he came cool. and gave a, a seminar, and, you know, there was 60 of us total. And 59 of us were watching this going, yeah, interesting but we're just trying to learn these six strings here mm -hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> but it was so cool because it planted a seed in steve's brain and he just started experimenting with what can i do with my right hand playing notes and he came up with a system and i thought i would check in with him every once in a while and it sounded so good he was kind of like the resident rocker and everybody else was really into jazz at that time, we had two bebop teachers and a fusion teacher, and that was it. It was long before Ingve or any of that came along. Um, Al Dimiolo was the shredmeister at that time, and George Benson's live record came cool. out. Cool. Anyway, I, I really wanted to get into tapping because it sounded so fresh to me, and it was really simultaneous and separate from Van Halen at that time. Um, I don't even know if Steve was aware of Van Halen when he when Steve started tapping. And as soon as the classes were over, the year was over, I contacted him and I said, can you send me your demo tape that you were working on? And he did. And I tried to work out the solos with just one finger of the right hand and it sucked and I ended up with a blister. And so at that time I had moved back to San Diego and I drove up to LA to take a lesson with him and he showed me his system. And he was working on his first book called The Right Touch at that time. And that was enough to just set me off to my own experiments. And, uh, yeah, I really dug into it deep. Cool, cool. cool. Jennifer, I am just picking up a tiny bit of echo since we had the um, the, the camera fall down. Have, has your volume bumped up a little bit? Can, are you able to turn me down at all? Yeah, I could turn you down. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just hearing the odd thing of me uh, in the background. And also, if you could just angle your camera down. You had a really nice angle before yeah, we were on I it. I don't see a picture of me now. Oh, you can't see yourself? Okay. Just, just down you know a little what? bit. I, I had a really nice split going on there. Now I feel like I'm up high. 
Oh, sorry. Okay. There, okay. that's it. Yeah, I'll that's beautiful. YouTube and see what you're seeing. Yeah. Uh, but it did give me a chance to have a look around that that room. Right? Some nice guitars there, the Paisley Telecaster. Yeah. What else uh, got there? A little jazz box. Yeah, it's a uh, 175 from my father. <clears throat> Nice. And my, my sister's boyfriend worked at the Fender Custom Shop for many years, and he gave me that Telecaster that he built. And it's it's super cool because he he knows I like light guitars, and so he carved the shit out of the back of it. I'll show you. Okay. <clears throat> it's a really unusual carve-out. Wow. Boy, you're still not coming on YouTube for some reason. Um I can't tell what you're seeing, but... Yeah, 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 I can see that. Great. That's awesome. That must be so light. It, oh, it's a feather. Yeah, I love it. Wow. So that that brings me around to when you were playing Ibanez, uh, from memory, you were playing like a, a Sabre or something like that. Was that the model you were doing? It was a nice thin one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was the first one. The, I, I had several. I was with Ibanez for seven years, and... Uh, Seven warped necks. Every neck went to hell. Oh, really? They, they were so super thin back then that I, I remember one time there was one guitar I got that I go, oh, okay, this one feels great. This rocks. And I was in the studio. The next day I went in and the L.A. has what they call the Santa Ana winds, very dry weather. And the guitar just went to hell overnight. It was, it was stunning how it could be so cool one day and just poof the next. Uh-huh. But I'm assuming okay, they would have been um, one-piece necks back then uh, as opposed to the, the whole laminated five-piece thing or, or more that they do now, which adds a bit of stability, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of light guitars, I've also seen you playing Parker Fly. I saw a bit of that last night, which sounded like you had the, the Piso, Piezo, however you want to pronounce it, uh, pick up in there. What other cool guitars have, have come your way? that you've played over the years? Yeah, that one I actually borrowed because I, at, at that point I was with Washburn and they owned Parker as well. Okay. And I, I borrowed one of those $10,000 Baloo guitars. I had the Variax electronics inside. Nice. And managed to break that on one tour. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> That'll teach you to loan me a guitar. Um, I do have a... Um, uh, one of the Parker Fly bronze acoustics, which you can't get anymore. And that was, I inherited that from my father. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where the 175, I didn't play it much. I, I actually did play that when I was at GIT, but um, it's just been hanging on the wall. And the, the Parker Fly, I didn't really touch it for a year or so after I got it. Once I picked it up and plugged it in, I go, oh my God. It, it weighs like a feather and sounds amazing. It, it's just crazy. And ever since then, I, I've wanted to get one of the uh, the similar ones, that uh, nylon string. They call it the nylon fly. And it's a very rare thing to ever see it uh, advertised. People are hanging on to them. Or, or they didn't one. Yeah. Nice. And, and, and so you're with Washburn now. Uh, it, that's, that's your main squeeze, isn't it? Yeah, it has been since the history tour. I I, um, I checked out the Line 6 Variax for a couple of years, 
didn't really dig the guitar, changed everything on it, changed the neck out, changed the pickups and put a Graftech Floyd on it because that's, that's the only Floyd style tremolo that has the electronics to talk to the Variax electronics. And I did that for a couple of years and then uh, my buddy at Washburn asked me to come back and they, they were breaking out the parallax uh, line at that time and they sent me one and I really liked it. So I'm back. Nice. And I, I noticed it's, you've got the, uh, the Stevens extended cutaway on that. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. It's, you know, I, I had seen Nuno's guitar for years and I, it was really interesting cause it had a different kind of thing on the front by the neck joint. And I didn't realize that it was a whole different joint system until I got my own. I go, wow, this, that's one thing. I, I had never had a 24 fret guitar before either. And man, you can get up to the 24th fret and, and then some super comfortably. It's, it's a really cool design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember actually getting a, a Washburn catalog back in the very early 90s, probably 91, 92. And they had some strats basically with that built into it, just straight out Fender Stratocaster with the extended cutaway. And I was always, wow. man, I want one of those. And I haven't been able to find a secondhand one around anywhere uh, since then. And I, I'm wondering whether I was, if I was to reach out to the Washburn Custom Shop, whether they'd build something like that again. Do you know, oh, do, they, sure. do they do much in the way of custom guitars? Are yours off the shelf or do you get yours custom? Uh, at this point, I... I tweak everything yeah. the, even the parallax that i have i didn't really like the pickups, so i changed them out to fishman fluence i got a modern in the bridge and other two from the stratocaster set and their, their normal was a pmx 10 i'm terrible with numbers but that's i think a pxm 10 is the model that i have which only comes with two humbuckers and i really prefer uh kind of the hot rod strat kind of thing with five positions yep so um i changed the pickups out and what and then i had it uh had them make me a short scale neck because i i've been used to the gibson scale for years and there's really a difference you know totally totally i want to stress my hands out at this point yep yep Uh, it's funny you should say that because i've always played a, a strat scale length guitar and uh put a, a gibson in my hands and i just can't play in tune i can't bend in tune or anything it just totally overshoot it but there is that less tension definitely has that been an issue for you like uh tendonitis anything like that over the years yeah the, the yeah. last couple of years uh kind of freaked me out i started having trouble with my knuckles actually on both both hands actually the first knuckle and I went to a a therapist and it was really interesting because for this hand anyway I was using the the tiny fender heavy picks all these years and they end let's see oh the camera's up here I got two screens I'm looking at the pick would end underneath the the knuckle joint Mm -hmm. and so what was happening she said is Every time you pick, you're doing the, like millions and millions of micro movements over the years that's sawing away the cartilage wow. between the knuckles, which is frightening because, y- you know, that doesn't regrow on its own. No. And I actually even looked into stem cell therapy, which is extremely expensive and painful and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I switched to a normal size pick 
that actually lays on top of the knuckle joint so that doesn't happen anymore. Wow. And I knock on wood, uh, it's, it's really helped clear it up. I also went to extremely light strings, eight to, it was kind of a hybrid of a pack of eights and a pack of nines on the bottom. And I love it. Me too. Man, I mean, six months after I started doing that, I went back to my normal guitar I used to use. And I go, oh, no wonder my hands hurt. Jesus. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it makes bending much easier. And also, you can do these really subtle moves uh, with with slinkier strings that help me emote more, really. Yeah. It's funny that it's almost exactly... Uh, the same issues I had uh, with the tendonitis in exactly the same places. Uh, the, 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 well, they, that was RSI in the joints, but it was also getting tendonitis in the forearms and things. So just overplaying. And you were saying about that first knuckle. One thing I, I pinned it down to was I was playing in a million cover bands at the time. And every band, the first song was always in A. And I play my A chord with one finger with the, the knuckle kind of bent back some yeah uh and i was thinking that's what it is i'm not warmed up and I'm, I'm i'm doing that to my finger i was working at a music store the next day i'd have to drive home two hours from a sunshine coast gig and i just wasn't getting the sleep for it to recover uh, it's a big thing as you get older huh it's hydration up most people don't think about hydration that's super important and sleep is is designed yeah i mean i won't go too deep down that but um there, we're in a culture where people feel like they're Superman for not sleeping. Oh, I only do five hours a night, blah, blah, blah. But sleep is designed to repair all the damage that happens during the day in various parts of your body and your brain and na, na, And there's plenty of studies out that go, here's Joe that didn't sleep and here's Jen that did sleep and having them do cognitive tests or physical tests and to deny yourself sleep, uh, you might as well just eat candy for food. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Bad news. So talking about uh, injuries from overplaying, hearing, have you had any issues with tinnitus or have you been very aware of wearing earplugs since a young age? Dude, three years with Jeff Beck and there is damage that will never be repaired. That was a loud, loud band. And having said that, I mean, it's the kind of music where you can't play quiet drums with Jeff Beck. It just, you need a certain amount of energy. And his tone is so high fidelity. I I felt like I could listen to his guitar at any level. That never hurt. It was the bass and drums that Mm. would hurt. And, you know, I tried earplugs and it's, it's not good because especially with a gig like his. If, if I was in a band that was played on 11 for the whole show, plugs, great, not a problem. But we'd do something that's like full out, and then he would go down to a whisper. And invariably, I would find that I'd be on a patch that had this ridiculous delay going, and I didn't hear it. Hmm. I couldn't hear the subtleties of sound. And so I didn't wear plugs, and it's I've got the damage, boy. I at the Nam show every year they have some free hearing tests that they'll do for you, and I went in there, and people are waiting for me to give the signal, like, okay, now I hear it, and it's nope, <laughs> didn't hear that one either. So since then, 
my, my ears are so damaged that I cannot play with a band without some kind of protection. Hmm. And for, for years, I used the Sensophonics um, 3D ambient uh, in-ear monitors. And what that is, it's pretty revolutionary, really. It was ridiculously expensive, but they have a much cheaper and better model now. But what it is, it's um, there's two lines. One is if you're uh, if somebody's sending you a mix, then yeah, you get that in your in yours. But the other line is connected to a box. Uh, well, you have microphones in your ears. Mm-hmm. There's a mic in each ear, so you can dial in from this box how much ambient sound you want to add to the outside noise. And so if I'm sitting in with a band, I'll use the mics only, and I will be listening at a third of the volume that everybody else is listening. And that's just fine by me. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I take it to uh, comedy shows. I'll take it to any music show I do, but invariably a comedian at some point is gonna scream into the mic. Mm-hmm. And I can't take it. I can't take sirens. It, yep. It's just super irritating and painful. Now the company, I don't have these, but they came up with a, a new model that you can connect to your smartphone or Bluetooth and dial in exactly what you want EQ-wise per ear. Wow. So if this ear is shot and this is not, you want completely different settings. So reading reading the, the ad for it, it goes, I want, I want. And, and this is, God, the first set that I bought years ago was $2,500. And it's very expensive, but the thing is that your ears don't recover. Hmm. If they're going to recover, they need 48 hours. And if you're doing gigs every night, you don't have that luxury. And that's how it was with Jeff. There was, I remember some sound checks, I'd be going to sound check and my ears were hot already and painful. So, yeah. Wow. I mean, it was a beautiful experience, but I I wish those in-ear monitors had been invented much earlier. I'm the same. I don't go anywhere without my molded earplugs. Uh, and they're great. As you said, you could be at a comedy show or just anywhere that's got a sharp bang, bang. Actually, I was popping some um, packing foam the other day. I was doing an unboxing video and I had it too close. And and you just see me on camera just go, oh, man, that hurt. But bass. Um, Mikey, I'm going to call you out on this one, mate. My, my friend Mikey Edwards, I've been playing with a long time. I've done gigs where I've got my earplugs in, and then he starts playing bass, and I'm thinking, whoa, this, that's going straight through the plugs, and I'm going to have to wear earmuffs on top of my plugs if he doesn't turn down right. because it's a different set of, of frequencies there that just seems to resonate through your bones. Well, there's a certain amount of, of – volume that's going to go through your skull it just Mm. goes through your bones that there's nothing you can do about that unless you're going to be in a like a cone of silence Mm. so it's it's always going to be a compromise and it's always going to be different at every venue speaking of hearing loss i i did do some work at the end of last year for a a a company that uh made hearing aids uh basically and and did tests for people you're talking about the tests at, at nam have you ever tried a hearing aid no, I, I know I should because uh, the last time I got an ear mold, the guy, <clears throat> we were talking about hearing damage and he wanted to do a hearing test and I'm like, oh yeah, upsell, upsell. I just want these damn molds made, right? Yep. 
But he said, if you're if you have damage to different frequencies, uh, they're only going to degrade over time. But the benefit of having a really well, it's not just a hearing aid; it's a really good hearing aid, which is like ten thousand mm. dollars. Um, it can prevent the loss by dialing in exactly what you need. And I haven't done it, and especially with COVID and everything shut down, I don't have ten grand hanging out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did uh, actually try some as as I was working there. I was, got talking with one of the audiologists, and he ran all the tests, and then. They can tune them for you so you can try it. And wow, that was a big revelation of the speaker being lifted off, uh, the blanket wow. being lifted off the speaker kind of effect. And I've been wearing plugs since my early 20s because I, I know that I damaged them just as a teenager playing in, in rock and roll bands. Uh, so it's one of those things you don't know what you've lost until you try something like that. Sure. And it's like, I can hear what? <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Jen, you, we were talking about your guitars over the years. I know now in terms of a guitar rig, you're using uh, Thomas Blug's Blue Guitar Amp 1, which I think is absolutely incredible, as well as Thomas being just a, a really nice human being. Um, yeah. Had you experimented with um, smaller rigs over the years to lead you to that? Uh, and what were you using back in the, the big days with Michael Jackson and Jeff Beck? Did you have a huge rig that somehow scaled its way down to what you've got now? Yeah, well, I've had so many configurations over the years. When I got the Bad Tour in 1987, it was the the era of the racks, and it was before multi-effects. So I had a single rack space for reverb, another single rack for chorus, a double rack. Um, God, I can't even think of the company. It was also a MIDI switcher that uh, was a delay then I had a couple pedals. I needed an envelope filter and maybe a wah back then. Um, and, and two Boogie Mark threes in a rack where I was just uh, using a power soak and going into strategy 400 power amp. So one whole Boogie Mark three was for clean, one was for dirty. And it took three guys to lift it. It was just an, a ridiculous amount of weight. And fortunately, Michael had the money to bring all that crap around the world. Um, when I was with Jeff, I went through a con- couple of configurations also. At, at one point, I had a PV5150, uh, Digitech 2101, uh, because I worked for Digitech. I, I did a, hundreds of clinics for them, especially in Europe, but around the world. So I was always into the Digitech gear. And you know, I got to the point where 99% of my gigs, I had to jump on a plane. So you can't take a Marshall with you and you can ask for certain amps but I guess I have control issues <laughs> I, would, I would never trust them to have you know the tubes biased properly or you know there's not nothing much you can do about the cabinet you can ask for a 1960 or whatever and hope that you get it but that's always a crapshoot man I remember I was running stereo at one point and I did a clinic in Idaho and uh they said, yeah, we, we, we got two speakers for you. And I get there and I'm, sorry, we sold one this morning. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I guess we're mono tonight. You know, anyway, fast forward, I'm working with Digitech and for the last, oh gosh, I don't know how many years, I, I was using their um, RP1000 was the latest model, uh, all in one with, with models and stuff. 
and you know it was it was okay it was it was okay it was not a tube amp sound regardless of what model i choose chose but it's got to be something that fits in a suitcase right so that's what i did and when i first saw thomas um i had known him from different uh conventions I think I met him in China years ago, okay. and I only knew him as a guitar player. He was demoing for uh, Hughes and Kettner at the yeah. time. Yeah. And I go, man, he sounds great. The tunes are great. The tones are great. And I ended up at his place for a social visit one day when I was in the north of France. A friend of mine said, hey, Thomas lives right across the border in Germany. Let's go. And we did, and he had just finished the prototype for the Amp 1, and I just looked at it and fell in love before I even plugged in. I go, okay, this is essentially a 100-watt vintage Marshall with four channels that's MIDI-capable with tube saturation. There's a, a, what he calls a nanotube, sub-miniature tube in it. And all these variables on the side that you can really tweak it to your, your own taste. And I, I, he plugged me in, and I go, when can I have one? I, I, and it was just torture the next six months, waiting for him to go through all the, the process where you you got to get uh, tagged as electronically kosher in America, and Canada has a whole other system. And when I finally got one, that that's it, man. I, that, I do a multimedia show. I play with bands in a lot of different situations, but... Normally when I fly, I do a multimedia show. So my carry-on is two projectors, two laptops, and a 100-watt amp. So that's always with me. They, they can lose my pants, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm going to have my amp. And, and which model? Because there is the um, Iridium and the Mercury editions. Have you got the yeah. original? Uh, or have you? I do have the original. Yeah. In fact, I have three of them. I'm, I'm loaning them out to guitar bros around the area that i live in portland oregon to just let people test it out yeah um and i got one in the studio and one in my pedal board mm-hmm. i've actually got a few local players that are interested in in trying one out themselves and um, i'm trying to organize to get the two to me so that they can make their decision as to which one's for them and, and play some orders but yeah a lot of people have gone axe effects etc but i want to be hitting uh, if I was to use a floor unit, I want to be hitting an analog unit uh, yeah. rather than hitting AD converters with a pedal and and hoping that it's going to react the same as a tube amp because I, I don't think it does. <laughs> Not exactly the same. You know, uh, I remember when I was touring when the Kemper came out and I, this guy in Germany was saying, ah, oh, you got to try this. It's the greatest thing ever. And I looked at it, my first thing is how many pounds? It was a big clunky thing at that point, and it did not have all the multi-effects I wanted in it. In fact, the first one may have not had any effects at all, and I just had zero interest because it's gotta be suitcase friendly. And I know they've developed a lot of stuff since then, but for me, the way I've worked stuff out is I have very specific effects that I want and I got to have an expression pedal. So there's all this other weight that's going to come on top of it all anyway. So, um, and I've heard, a lot of people are really thrilled with the Kemper. They sell a lot of them, uh, tons of them around the world. Um, but I've also heard that really, if, unless, unless you're a real nerd and can really dial it in, 
or get th- third party models that it's it's not plug and play. Mm-hmm. So that they lost me right there. Sure, <laughs> I, I was touring with a, a Kemper uh, fairly early on in a, in a Queen tribute show. I was I was Brian May in the wig up there, uh, and it was great for live and the convenience of flying. Uh, it got to the point where we'd have the two AC30s as backline, but they were just props eventually, and I would just play direct. Uh, but it was okay in a, in a live situation. What let me down was in the studio, I found. And some people think, yeah, it, it's, it's great, you know, have all these amps at your fingertips. For me, there's a sound about it. And what made me sell it and, and buy a, a really nice tube amp was the fact that I was producing a record for a group that had three guys playing guitar, and they all double-tracked. They recorded direct and they wanted me, they'd seen me live and they said, man, just run it through that thing. That thing had a sound and that sound built up with every layer. And they would, came back to me and said, man, that just doesn't sound like the other records you've done for us. There's this sound. And I'm like, that's that thing. So mm. there's a lot to be said about a, a genuine tube amp. Huh? It's those little nuances that collectively build up. Yeah. You know, another thing, when I was traveling with Digitech, um, I never, ever, ever rolled back on the volume because when it's digital, it just sounds like crap. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, with the Amp 1, I'm able to do that, and it's a whole other world. It's it's like a whole other color you can add. So that's it for me. I'm really excited about his Amp X. I can't wait till that. Yes. Yeah, he's packed a lot into that. That could be the, uh, the digital modeler killer. Thomas, you're under a good thing there, man. If you can pull this off, you're under a good thing, man. <laughs> He's one of those guys that, uh, thank goodness, people like him are out there because he's the kind of boffin, they call him in England, that will just sit there and listen to tubes for 10 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I won't. I'm good for 10 minutes, and I, you know, I just want to get in there and play. In fact, he invented another thing that I think – is, is going to be part of the new amp. Uh, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing. He, he's got a thing called the Blue Box, which is an uh, IR speaker emulator. And you get a choice of 16 different speaker models plus a virtual mic placement knob. And, man, I know anybody that's recorded at home has probably spent nightmarish minutes where you got the creative vibe and you just want to go and – you put the put the it sounds so good where the cabinet is and you go back in the control room and it's like ugh and you go back and move it by micro movements like five hundred times. By the time you get a sound you like, you don't want to play anymore. Exactly. So now with the blue box, I think it's a nineteen sixty four, he's got two different Marshall models. I don't remember which one I like best. But I set it there and I sit there with the mic placement knob and I'm dialed in in five minutes ready to track. So And also, I take that with me on the road because there's so many times, especially with my solo show, where I'll show up and they'll go, oh, you need a cabinet? We didn't know. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, I'm traveling. I'm on a plane. I don't take a 412 in the overheads. Anyway, so I've, I've had to use the speaker emulator, and it's literally the best sound I've ever gotten out of monitors for guitar. Because a lot of times when you have those horns hitting you and it's, uh, it's, it's just hellish, you just want to run away. It's, uh, 
it's a really good safety thing to have with you anyway. I think speaker IRs in general have been a huge advancement in, in terms of being able to recreate your sound consistently out front. I had mm. Steve Stevens on last week and we had a good rave beforehand before we, we went live and he was just saying about he's got the Boss Tube amp expander. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, the Wazacraft one. But he was using that now instead of miking up. And the moment they tried it, his front of house guy just said, whoa, this is amazing. So he's getting a feed off that. He's no longer miking up. Uh, wow. But he is adding a little bit of ambience in his, in his in-ears. Are you, okay. are you adding any ambience on your in-ears that you aren't using live? That's not going out the front live or...? Honestly, I suffer with in-ears. I, I hate the sound. I've got a, uh, I started a cover band in town last summer for when I'm off the road, and everybody insists on in-ears, and so I'm going along with it because I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place. I can't listen to the volume of live drums. I hate earplugs, so in-ears is as close as I could get, and I, I'm just experimenting like a bastard trying to do all this different stuff i got an ambient mic i put down there and i tried different placement for that one thing i discovered one show we did had um the sound guy had a, an audix i5 on the cabinet uh -huh. and i thought that was a vast improvement to the other mics to, to the 57 and the the square one that hangs down i hate that one akg i think or maybe sennheiser 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 yeah, I hate that. It's just awful. Um, so I, I, I'll just settle with I'm suffering because I don't have a, a sound that goes straight to my ears that I love yet. Mm. I, I found it a little too direct for me, and I've had times where I think I'm sucking on guitar because it's so direct, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, I don't know what's on, happening tonight, guys, and they're like, Sounds fine. That actually brings me on to something else. You mentioned the Variax earlier, and you've experimented with that. Did you go down the road of having different tunings built into it? Actually, that's the reason that I wanted to get it, was I was starting to get into uh, detuned acoustic tunes. Yep. Uh, uh, Preston Reed, I got turned on to him. I, I just love what he does. It's just beautiful acoustic tapping stuff. And so I wrote a couple of tunes, and when I travel, I, I can't take two guitars anymore with the travel restrictions and stuff. So I thought, man, if I have a Variax, I can also have, I can have number one, an electric guitar with all these different models, plus I can have a semi-acoustic guitar, and you can change the tuning with the push of a button. Because something I find so irritating with acoustic guitar players is They'll just be waiting between songs. It's like, yeah. would you just get on with it? Just push a button, bam, here comes the next song. Yeah. You know, it's really distracting. So, And that's something I was not willing to do myself, is tune on stage like that. So that was really appealing. Um, it's got dobro sounds. And, and one other thing is every once in a while, I'm sure everybody that's played clubs will run into this, or, or theaters also, that the electricity is crap. And so there's a buzz through the system that no matter what you do, repatching, you know, you can spend an hour reworking things, new cables, whatever, you can't get rid of it. Well, if you switch into the virtual pickups, poof, dead silent. silent. Dead silent, yeah. So it's, it's, it can save you. 
Yeah. We, we talked about wearing earplugs and being able to hear through your skull, etc. Why I I did go down the road of of uh, Variax because I was playing with a million bands, some tuned down, some standard, different tunings. What threw me out was you hear through your fingers as well, the bones in your fingers. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I can hear my pickup selector clear as day when I change pickups and I'm wearing earplugs. I hear that so loud through my fingers. What caught me out with the Variax was, again, I'd flick it to a drop D tuning. I'm playing in virtual drop D, but I'm feeling that dissonance as if (laughs) I haven't tuned down. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Was that an issue for you? Hearing the sound through your fingers is nothing that ever entered my consciousness before. I, well, wow. feeling it more than anything. We said about your, your, your bones, your, your right, brain, right. Uh, not your brain, but right. your, your head, yeah. I was experiencing the same, the same thing. It was probably more feeling it, that dissonance of if you were to play in the style of playing right. drop D, but not actually drop it, you feel it immediately, right? It's huh. like you can tune without hearing your guitar and no reference by feeling the harmonics go, yep, I'm there. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, same thing caught me up. Again, I'm you saying know, with a pen. You, you go, now sorry. that we're talking about bones, I just, um, I, I did a Kickstarter thing. I, I bought something on Kickstarter that sometimes you have to wait and wait and wait because they have to get enough orders to manufacture it and go through testing and everything. But there's a very interesting thing I have high hopes for called Wooger, W-O-O-J-E-R. And they make two different things. And one is a strap, and it's uh, it's bone conduction is what it is. You, you put your mix, you can split it out and have in-ears and have another part of the mix go to this thing, and it vibrates your bones. And, I, I, and and the other one is meant for gamers where it's a vest. So you're playing all these games and you're poo poo pew, 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 and hearing really rocking your bones in your body. So I, you know, I hope I'm not disappointed when that comes out. But I think that's the future of sound. And there's they're putting out uh, headphones now that are about bone conduction instead of being right in your ears. And that's, that's really fascinating because I was at a NAMM show years ago where somebody had me step on a platform that essentially was a speaker that would induct all the the music in your bones. And it was so fascinating. It was one of those moments where you're just going, game changer. Because I, I could hear the music like a, a far off radio in their booth. And you know how th- those music conventions are so noisy. Loud, it's yeah, so loud, chaos. yeah. The minute I stepped on that platform, it was night and day the music coming through my bones and i go oh my god this wow. is a game changer that's amazing and i i don't know if the company I, it might be the same company that does the butt kicker for drummers mm-hmm. I, I don't know put a speaker under the seat uh, i don't know but I, I i actually bought one and did everything wrong and lost interest <laughs> Next subject. <laughs> so, Jennifer, you, you mentioned earlier about uh, having a stereo rig back, back playing with Michael Jackson and, and Jeff Beck. Yeah. Do you still still play in stereo? No, uh, I don't. Well, s- since I got the amp one, which it would be easy enough to have two amps because they're so small. But when I travel, it, it's just I'm maxed out in weight at, as it is. And 
you know, I don't have to worry about matching up volumes right to left and having an extra speaker. I, I, you know, I, I toured with Andy Timmons three or four years ago and he goes stereo and it was such a tiny stage. It was like seven guitar players on the tour. It was ridiculous. So everybody was on top of each other. And I, I think normally he would spread his cabinets out, but he had them on top of each other and his, his sound was just great. So it kind of made me want to do stereo, but I'm frankly too lazy. <laughs> How about MIDI? You said you, that when you got the gig with Jeff Beck that you essentially became the keyboard player as well. And I did see something online last night of you playing some uh, a MIDI system and the tracking was incredible. I'm not too yeah. sure exactly what that was. Um, that, can you can you take us through your MIDI rig? I'm going to have a quick bio break while you talk, right? uh, and I will be back in 30 seconds. But I just want to, if you can talk about your, your MIDI rig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It is called the Fishman Triple Play Wireless MIDI System. And I had seen it in music shop windows for a couple of years, and it had been so long since I did any MIDI stuff um, since Jeff Beck, I had physical modules, JV1080s by Roland for sound modules, and a 13-pin cable. That one of those pins goes off and everything has gone south. And uh, mostly because I jump on planes, once again, I'm maxed out in weight between my clothes and cables and gear. There, there was just no way I was going to take a module on board. But I finally... I finally, uh, my interest was piqued enough to get one of the Fishman systems. And man, what a game changer. Back in the Jeff days, um, thankfully, I wasn't asked to play any solos with that system <laughs> because there, there was such a delay uh, that it would just be a drag. And the only time I had to do single line stuff with Jeff was, there was uh, a song called Savoy. I think from the guitar shop record where there was a little horn part and I would trigger those with the Roland system. And I, it was okay, but I had to really be on top of the beat to not, you just kind of have to gauge how much the delay is. Mostly I did pads, but when I jumped onto the Fishman MIDI system, all of a sudden the latency is almost nothing. And it really depends on the patch that you're using, but there's a Jan Hammer Moog kind of sound that I used um, they have, God, I think a hundred sounds that are super dialed up already once you load all the sounds in. And all you need is uh, a little uh, you know, MIDI pickup that goes to a controller on your, on your guitar, and then it runs wirelessly to a laptop. And the triggering is just phenomenal. So yeah, you can solo, and it's just a whole other world. I, I did a tour of... America four or five years ago where I demoed it at all of the Sam Ash music shops and people ended up just eating those up like crazy. Um, but it's, it's so cool because the latency is, you know, next to nothing. Plus you, you can turn your guitar into a four quadrant sound system. For instance, you can program it to go from the first fret to the seventh, maybe on the top, with drum sounds. So wow. you can lay down a drum groove. Oh, yeah. And then the bottom, you can make that bass, let's say fretless bass. The two quadrants on the other side could be two different keyboard sounds. So you can literally, you get an idea and do a simple drum groove, 
then you got the bass, then you got these two different synth sounds. And back when I was programming, when I was with Jeff, I had to program every string to be this. And then if I wanted to combine a sound, I'd go to the next module and choose every string to be this, and then listen to the combination. And if I liked it, great. If I didn't, I'd start over. You know, With this, you say, I want that sound all over the guitar. And then you choose another sound, and it's a matter of dragging a color across the virtual neck. And boom, you got two sounds. Um, if you want that next sound only on the lower three strings, you drag that color only there. And there's colors left and right as well. How the so hell really do they do that? Down. How it's, the hell do they do that? <laughs> I was just, I'm just scanning my head. Like, how, how would it? I'm just trying Go to work ahead. out in my head how that pickup would detect what part of the neck you, you're playing. In. Is there something? Oh, sorry, because I did duck off just for thirty seconds. Is there something on the fretboard that detects what part you're playing on? Uh, it must know. Uh, or, or maybe uh, maybe when you drag the color, it, it knows the strings and the tones of those strings up to a certain position. I, I don't know the coding. I just wow. know it works. Because the timbre, the like timbre a, is different depending on what part of the neck. As you said earlier, trying to read as a guitar player is very hard because – some notes you can play in five different positions on the neck, but they all do sound slightly different. Maybe it's picking up those little variances. That is incredible. Yeah, the technology is phenomenal. And they just came up with, uh, I think this, I don't know how long ago, but within the last year, they came up with one that you can use with an iPad. It's designed to go with an iPad, but this one is not wireless. It's wired, which might make it more stable. Well, it certainly would make it more stable. So I haven't really dug deep into that, but it's um, for what it can do. It's really cheap for songwriters. If you want inspiration to dial up sounds, it's it's the best thing going right now. Wow, and that's through Fishman. You said right? Yeah. Was, yeah. Wow. I might have to see if they need a demo on that because that sounds that sounds incredible. Now you did mention yeah. the, the Fishman Fluence pickup. Uh, earlier yeah. in our chat as well and i had frank falbo one as my first live chat actually he was kind enough to come and, and give me a give me a go and he he uh, had a hand in designing that uh what's your appeal to the the fishman fluence because i'm getting a lot of people asking me about it and i, I haven't played it so I'll yeah you me. know changing pickups is such a pain in the ass in guitars and i learned not to work on my guitars years ago because i destroyed a few <laughs> so so for me now, uh, especially since I don't live in L.A. anymore, the guitar shops are only open like Wednesday to half a day Saturday, and it's a two-hour round trip, and it's really inconvenient for me. And I, I'm not going to change pickups out myself. I was influenced by the guitarist Greg Koch, yeah. who's, who's one of their main demo guys, does stuff for him around the world and his tone is so off the chain wonderful that was enough for me to go oh okay <laughs> you know that's all i need to know i don't need to you know buy it and check it out i know it's it's going to be rocking and he he carts oh he's he's got like a looks like a casket that he carts around he's always got a tally a les paul and a strap he takes everywhere with him and it's all loaded with fishman pickups and well, one of the appeals too is they're a lot quieter than regular pickups, and they are active, but you can charge them with a phone charger, and cool. the the charge will last three hundred hours. Wow! 
I'm going to try one of those. Now, I did meet Greg uh, a couple of years ago. A friend of mine, Licia, who's in the chat, uh, was there with us. He is a big man. He dwarfed me. (laughs) I've got a photo with him, and I'm 6'3", and he made me look like a child. He was just a big man. I was not expecting that. But uh, with guys like that, a lot of the tone is in in the hands as well. And he must have some powerful hands. But, yeah, I was really blown away at his playing at that uh, Fender Roadshow it was. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What other current crop of guitar players um, do you find have really raised the bar that you go, oh, wow, how's that person? There's a few of them out there now, huh? (laughs) <laughs> there's tons yeah it, it's pretty overwhelming um my favorite right now is matias asato mm-hmm. he's he's kind of an instagram star yep and man i mean the feel and the the melodies and the touch is is just so supreme you know it puts all the shredders to shame totally. <laughs> you know yeah there was the short era where like and that gets old after a while unless there's some really good content within it. But yeah. he's he's next generation awesome. And mm-hmm. Lari Basilio is another one. They're both from Brazil. Uh-huh. I think there's something about the water in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Jeff and I were, Jeff Beck and I, when I was on the tour, we were down there in Rio. And we were just at the hotel having lunch out by the pool. And just this no-name guitar player was playing. And we're just like, oh, my God. You know, playing bossa novas and just brilliant stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I mentioned Louis Shelton earlier, and I was around at his place last week, and he showed me something on YouTube of an Italian chap. I think he's Italian, who was playing the shred guitar stuff, just that fastest left hand you've ever seen. But with no pick, he was doing it flamenco style. And I just, know that guy, yeah. I'm trying to think of his name. I'd love to get him on. I don't know if he speaks English or not, but... Uh, we were both going, what is this? Incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, I was going to say, uh, Thomas McRocklin as well. Um, I mentioned him earlier. I was really, I knew him from the guitar mags as when he was a little kid in the late 80s. But yeah. to see him play now, he plays exactly like I would expect a seven-year-old kid who was mentored by Steve I to play now that they're grown up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard him in in years. Check him out. In fact, I saw him. I think Steve had him play at a Nam show. There was one Nam where Steve was playing to tracks, and Thomas also played that show. It, it was it was great. I still remember those ads that had such an impact. You know, he's got Steve on his wall yeah. as the post inspiration, and yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear what he's doing now. Yeah, well, he, he dropped out of the scene for quite a few years and became a, a mastering engineer uh, and, oh. yeah, got into electronic music and stuff. So uh, he's got a really cool – he does a solo album, but he also has something McRocklin and Hutch, and that's got all those cool electronic elements going on, which – Great, I love it. Yeah, it really floats my boat. I, I love my, my synths and drum machines as well as the guitars. Hmm. Yeah. Is there any other instruments that, that do it for you, not just guitar? Like um, – as I said, I'm really into synths and drum machines. And I had a, a chap on earlier uh, that said saxophone. was He was all about the saxophone, which really surprised me. Do you find yourself listening to uh, other instruments? 
I do, yeah. In fact, one of my favorite labels is Peter Gabriel's Real World label. I love ethnic music around the world. You know, African, the Bulgarian women's choir, just all kinds of wacky stuff. I think one of my favorite instruments ever is the the I-Ripes. Yulian Pipe. Yeah. And Jeff Beck turned me on to those. And it's the way they do, I'll call it bends because that's how I hear it, but they can, you know, glide into notes and glide out of notes is by far way sexier than guitar. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. There's a guy named um, Spillane. I can't remember his first name or Spillane, Davy Spillane is somebody we were listening to back then. It's just beautiful stuff. Cool. Cool. I have to check check out some of that. I'm thinking tin whistle, but you're not talking about the tin whistle, are you? It's a different instrument. Yeah, it's it's like bagpipes, but it's not the Scottish pipes. Okay. Scottish pipes can be kind of annoying with that, that drone, drone kind of and the harmonics that kind of clash and go <laughs> in the top end. Yeah, I mean they they should come up with a whole another name for it other than pipes because people the confuse bag torture. it with But the Irish pipes is a whole other breed. Okay. Cool. You know, one thing, since um, my ears are a bit more sensitive now, there, there are instruments that I just can't listen to, and alto saxophone is one of those. Uh, that really? that hurts, man. <laughs> it's way... Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm just going to look through the, the comments here. Um, I have been giving you my, my full attention rather than keeping an eye on that. Just see if there's anything that anybody would like to ask you. I'm just working my way backwards, so bear with me. I did see something. Um, okay, so somebody's asking about have you experimented with amp modelers, etc. We did talk about that. They said that they they only just joined in, so uh, go back and check that one out. Hearing through your jaw, okay, in ears. Sorry, folks. If there is anything that I've missed, you might want to send a super chat, and that'll bring it straight up to me. But we can't all do that in these times. Love the Stevens Extended Cutaway. Yvette Young and Sarah Longfield are carrying the baton for this generation of two-handed masters. Have you heard of Yvette Young? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Great. I yeah. love it. Love it. Absolutely. Uh, my friend Sammy Bowler plays really nice two-handed pieces as well. I don't know if you know Sammy from Detroit. Does a lot of the stuff with uh, the guys from Friedman. Uh, here's one, and I know the answer to this already because I saw it on your website last night. Oh, sorry, not on your website, your YouTube page. Do you remember your cameo on the Aussie soap opera Neighbours, filmed during the Dangerous tour? Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of fun. Uh, I don't think I ever saw it back in the day, but recently somebody dug it up, so I put it on my YouTube page, which I would love to talk about. <clears throat> As me as well as millions of other musicians on lockdown or online like we've never been before. So I started two new playlists. One is called the Riff Kitchen, where I'm I'm uploading riffs, just random riffs, and I play them fast, play them slow, break them down, tell you where they're coming from, and uh, and, and I'm going to start expanding it too. I uh, the last series I did was for blues turnarounds. And then I'm going to start breaking down other people's solos and got all kinds of wacky stuff I want to do on that. And the other one is called, it's kind of valley talk. It's called, okay, so this one time, okay. (laughs) It's storytelling. So I'm I'm about to 
launch the ninth episode tomorrow. And it's just 10 minute chunks of um, behind the scenes of the Super Bowl or uh, various tours. And now I'm starting to, I, I would never have time to do this if I wasn't locked down, but I'm starting to dig into the, I must have 20 scrapbooks in my closet from over the years of wow. video shoots and tours and, you know, from high school and on. So I'm just grabbing stuff that anything that has a story behind it that I can talk about. And that's what I'm going to be dropping tomorrow. Awesome. And this is on your YouTube uh, channel. How do we find that? Is it just Jennifer Batten? Jennifer Batten one. Jennifer Batten. The, the number one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So just talking about some of the, the road stories and that, like, and I imagine you would have so many. What's the most memorable thing? Is there something that you look back on and just go, wow, I lived that? Apart from the whole, the whole tour of Michael Jackson and Jeff Beck, etc. Is there any really standout moment for you that you just pinch yourself and go, wow? Oh, there's tons of them. Um, I mean, just getting the Jackson gig, doing the Super Bowl, uh, seeing myself on TV for the first time on stage and being in videos. The, the Moonwalker shoot that we did for his video he put out, we did uh, come together for that, for shot for two days. Wow. It was, that's the loudest music I've ever heard in my life. He just wanted it turned up and up and up and up. He eventually turned to me and he goes, do you think it's loud enough? <laughs> and I looked at him like, are you insane? I mean, you know, your hair is doing this <laughs> from the volume of that. But um, gosh, I mean, getting a gig with Jeff Beck was not anything I ever dreamed of. And th there was a few gigs playing with him in New York and, you know, Billy Gibbons is backstage and Les Paul and a lot, a lot of people. Oh, well, it just triggered another memory of I flew over for – uh, rehearsals for Jeff at one point and he picked me up and we went immediately to Ronnie Wood's club he had a, a private club in London and you know I'm just thrashed from the flight but I'm not gonna pass this up and so we spent some time there had dinner there and went back to Ronnie's house and saw he, he does paintings of the stones and he had one on the easel so just seeing it up close like that was so cool then we ended up going down to his studio where he has uh he's got lights that look like stars in the ceiling like i, I think the the ceiling is painted black and then there's these lights and every once in a while there's a shooting star wow and we listened to the entire little richard box set and uh you know i mean it's, it's getting like three or four o'clock in the morning i'm just dying with jet lag and then jeff and ronnie started jamming to some blues record and I, part of me so much wanted to be a part of that and pick up a guitar. I, I don't even know if they had three amps, but I was just in the chair, just uh, fading into another universe. But yeah, that, that was a hell of a highlight. Wow. Very cool. I was just scanning through the, the questions there, and Scott Phillips is asking whether Michael, did Michael socialize with band members after or before gigs, or did he just keep to himself on tour? Well, there was 100 people in the entourage. Uh, we took up three different hotels. We would see him before shows, and we would have a, a group prayer. Everybody hold hands and kind of unify the energies. And 
various people would say the prayer. It was never Michael. Um, and then we would hit the stage, and he was gone before we played the last note for security. You yeah. know, they'd zoom him out of there, and we were still playing Man in the Mirror for another yeah, five. Right. You know? Uh, so we didn't hang at the same hotel as he did. He would set aside different events for us to get together. Like the first time we, we went to Japan on the bad tour, we were gone during Thanksgiving, I think, and also Christmas. Well, that sounds too long. Maybe it was just Christmas. But he would have a dinner for us. So nice. at least we could all get together and celebrate. And there was another time he had a – actually, I think it was a Thanksgiving in Australia, one of the tours, because we went there all three tours. Uh, and he would shut down amusement parks. He shut down the Tokyo Disneyland. He shut down another one in Germany so we could play without being bothered by fans. And he he loved to go on those rides that make everybody else puke. <laughs> he, he could just stay on those rides and just go over and over. And I just look at him and go, no thanks. But um, yeah, I people often ask if I was a, a good friend of his, and I say no, I was an employee. Is what I was. There was there was a hundred of us, from carpenters to makeup artists to techs to you name it. Yeah. So we would um, we we all generally traveled differently in different buses. Uh, when we went overseas, we would be on the same plane. We'd take commercial planes, and he had a, a security guard named Chucky. At, at one point that, the, oh my God, the guy was, I want to say seven feet tall, plus he would wear a top hat, plus he was he was pretty burly. Yeah. And so Michael would be in first class at the window looking at a magazine as people were coming in, and Chucky would sit next to him. Unless you knew Chucky and Michael, you wouldn't see Michael. Wow. Because <laughs> he was so big. Yeah. But yeah, we we did take commercial flights overseas. Wow. So what's what's something that people don't know about Michael that they'd be very surprised to learn? Is there anything that springs to mind? You know what? There, there were some things that came out after he passed that he gave more money to charities than any pop star in history and never talked about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't doing it to get points. He, yep. he did it because he cared. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first thing that stands out. Um, just he, he was just a, a great guy, a, a creative tornado, just yeah. creative in every sense, not just singing, not just writing, but add dancing to that and having a creative vision for he, what he wanted people to see on stage that was always growing. You know, he, he was almost like a creative vessel. Uh, I, I talked to the makeup artist, Karen Fay, and she said he'd be writing lyrics when he was in the makeup chair. Yeah. Yeah, wow. just always creating. You know, I, I did happen on YouTube a, across the um, his demo for Beat It, and it's just him and voice. And man, he he heard that whole thing in his head, like from the beat to all the riff and everything. He's yep. layered all the vocals, and it's basically an a cappella version of the finished thing. He heard all of that in his head, and that just blew me away. Boy, I haven't heard that one. I would like to look it up, but he look did it up. Billy in the same way. Yeah. Um, and one thing that surprised me was, it's amazing what you find on YouTube if you go looking for it, uh, mm-hmm. constantly taking singing lessons. Uh, I found 
phone lessons that he was taking with Seth Seth Riggs. Seth. Yep. 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 Uh, and you know, I, I know a lot of people are ah, singing lessons. Man, even you know, Michael Jackson was on the phone on tour getting touch-up lessons. Well, he brought Seth with him for a, for a lot of tours. Wow. And we would we would hear him warming up doing arpeggios before the show. Awesome. Yeah, he, he was serious. He was a very serious cat about yeah. his his art. As as you as you'd have to be to be at that level. Plus yeah. you know, from such a young age as well. How about Jeff Beck? Is this something that people would be surprised to learn about Jeff Beck? Uh well, the very first thing that comes to my mind is some of the funnest times we had <laughs> were super stupid. Um, he's really a comedian. You'd never know from really? the stage, but all his best friends are comedians, and he's a, he's got a great wit. And we, it started halfway through the first tour, I think, that we started having arm fart contests, like. <laughs> <laughs> and the contest was to do an arm fart for as long as you could without laughing. And the first week, none of us could get past five seconds. None of us. But we kept it up. It, it was kind of a thing. We'd have champagne after the show, and then we'd get out the timers and time each other. Who could do it the longest? And I will say he had the best tone, for sure. Wow. He, he would get in the crook of his arm, and it sounded like a Harley taken off. But I was the winner of the tour and my mother would be proud not <laughs> yeah that's something i used to do on tour just to keep it light was i can do hand farts and uh i can play beats with it and um yeah my my thing would be to be uh in, a, in an elevator and everybody goes dead silent don't they like you yeah, piles in doors close and everyone goes quiet and I would always break the ice with a bit of a. It's <laughs> just everyone you know would break into hysterics. He dared me one time when we entered a plane. We were the last ones on. It was a full flight, and he dared me to do it, and I did. And I everybody pretended like it didn't happen. Like, oh God, who are these assholes that just got on the flight? And I was. It was an early flight after a late night, and I just put on the eye shades and went right to sleep, which. Much to everyone's delight, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious, folks. If there's, if you're still watching, we still have. Well, we've got a lot of people watching. Uh, if you've got any questions for Jennifer, please drop it in the comments there. Um, I'm just going to have a quick scan. Uh, they're just talking about Greg Cock being quite a funny guy as well. He is, isn't he? Um, if yeah. anyone's ever seen him live, I love Greg. He's the reason I bought my small box. Hey, Drew, I thought I was the reason you bought the small box. Come on. <laughs> Not so. Uh, it's really hard, I've got to say, to, to try and keep an eye on the on the, the chat window while talking and, and giving um, the guests my, my full I attention. Know, I know. Yeah, yeah. So I have let it just kind of slip these days, and I, I figure if somebody really wants that, they'll chuck a little super chat in there. Now, when I first approached you about coming on, uh, I, I felt really bad because I, I invited you on and then I sent you an email of, hey, I've got a friend who's a fantastic female guitar player. Should we make a um, a female version? And, and you reached out to 
to somebody on my behalf as well. She's like, yeah, let, let's let's get on this. And then I emailed you back and said, you know what? I'd rather just have you on each one of you on by yourself rather than give you a third of my attention each because that can get a bit, yeah, you know, somebody's just going headlong into a story and you've got to cut them off and say, well, how about you, etc. Yeah. Uh, are you finding that a bit old hat now? Like, hey, let's have a, a, a girl special. And do, do you find that more feeds that whole mentality that, that you guys are trying to break out of? Because to me, it's, it's not an issue. It's not, oh, geez, you play good for a girl. It's yeah. you just play good, you know. Is I, I'm kind of neutral about the whole thing. Uh, there, there is a sisterhood in the guitar world, I think. So there's part of me that would look forward to, to hanging with them. And, and I've done a few uh, that are just, just kind of fun. In fact, what was it? I think it was uh, interviews. I, I did a tour last year with Gretchen Mann and Neely Brosh, and there was a, a couple people that came in to interview for various guitar things. And it's it's kind of fun to to hear their stories uh-huh. of of coming up and sharing that space. I don't have a problem with it. Cool, cool. Now I'm glad I I changed my mind and went no no. Each episode, then maybe later we can do do one if you're up for that still. Um, sure. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on, Jennifer, while I've got you here? You, you, you brought up your website, uh, your YouTube page earlier, which uh, sounds like it's going to be a great place for people to hang and check out your the kitchen and the stories. Yeah, and, and one other thing is every Tuesday, which is your Wednesday, I think. Uh, I'm from the future. At, at noon Pacific time, I'm doing uh, live streaming. And now I'm simulcasting YouTube, my two Facebook pages and Periscope, if people still use that, I have no idea. There's so <laughs> many out there. Can, I'm setting it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a question just co- did come through from Jose. Jose, thank you, man. You tune into a lot of these these live streams I'm doing. Question for Jennifer. Did she ever hear Jeff Beck talk about his days with the Yardbirds and his first visit to America? Yeah, yeah. He, he talked about how they were – they came to America so raw that he remembers the snare drum coming coming around the luggage belt with no case. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, the poor bastard. I've, I've heard him do interviews, uh, and, you know, he's – I think he's 75 years old now, and people still ask him about the Yardbirds when he was 17. Yeah. And he's he's got to answer the same things decade after decade. But, yeah, he, he talked about it a little bit, yeah. i, I got to say, when it comes to, to Jeff – um, you know, I was a uh, just learning to play guitar in the in the late '80s myself, and it was all about Steve Vai, Eddie Van Halen, Joe Satriani, and and I went out and I I saw a, a Jeff Beck CD of some of the early stuff, and I just didn't get it then. I remember thinking, yeah, I could play that. What's so special about that? It wasn't until years later that I really appreciated his yeah. singing quality. Um, just, you know, a standout thing was, I think it was a Spinal Tap song that had a compilation of all these great players and somebody was playing me that and you could hear, oh yeah, that's Slash, that's, that's Vi, whatever. And then at the end, it sounded like a screaming woman kick in. This, this, uh, 
okay, I got totally sick of everything else there. Who's that? And they went, that's Jeff Beck. <laughs> yeah. uh, what What do you think were, were his strengths, are his strengths as, as a guitar player that from somebody who's played with him, what do you just sit back and go, whoa, how's his? Well, one thing that I admire about him is he gets super bored with himself. And so all these years, he's still stretching and looking for new sounds. In fact, I think... The first, or maybe it was the third gig we ever did together was in Montreux, the Montreux Jazz Festival. And I think he was a little nervous. <clears throat> After sound check, he walked up to me and he goes, I need a new sound. And I looked at him like, can I have your old sound? <laughs> <laughs> but... He's always stretching and he's always listening. I, I tell people he will listen to the Spice Girls and Ornette Coleman back to back because he can glean things from everything. And he's a super sensitive guy. And I think that's what you have to be to be a great artist is, you know, you can have 10 people watch the same movie and get 10 different things from it. And he will find things that probably would have passed me by. I'm going, oh, yeah, it's it's the sound of the snare in that tune that makes it happen. Mm. You know, he once said that as far as recording, he said once, uh, if the drums are grooving and great, you don't need much more. I mean, that's a real Zen thing to say where most of us guitar players are going, throwing in the kitchen sink and here's this new lick and that new lick. And I put me, me, me on every track. He's like a minimalist, which is much harder to do to make those note choices really resonate with people. Now, you mentioned that the drums. Am I right in thinking that, well, Jeff Beck had a hand in, in writing Superstition with, with Stevie Wonder, didn't he? Did you know that? Uh, and I and don't in know fact, I, I want to say that it's him playing the drums on it. Does he, he play the drums or am I got that story completely mixed up? I My memory is Stevie wrote it for him although they may have collaborated and Stevie's record company heard it and said, Oh, you're not giving that away really because they knew it was a hit. Yep. So they made Stevie put it out. And of course it way outsold Jeff's version of it. So as a consolation prize, he gave Jeff cause we ended as lovers, which originally was called Sarita, which was Stevie's wife's name at the time. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm just going to change the battery on my my um, my camera there. I, I won't keep you too much longer, but it's giving you the battery low, and otherwise it's going to just do a freeze there. Yeah. Who haven't you played with that you'd like to play with? Oh boy. I, I well, I, I say Peter Gabriel because you know it's not really a guitar gig, but I, I find his music so interesting that I know I would learn a lot from it. As far as just guitar parts that uh -huh. would fit well with what he was doing, and I, I love his voice. The the So record is is one of those a top ten desert island records. And you've been to Real World Studios before? No, uh, -uh never. That looks like an amazing place. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, I love his mentality about it. Getting getting these. 
phenomenal ethnic players from around the world to come in. You know, something I did when I was with Jeff that was kind of a life changer is Stuart, um, uh, not Stuart, Miles Copeland, who used to manage Sting, bought a castle in the south of France, like you do. <laughs> and every summer he would block out two weeks and have songwriting sessions where he would have a pop week and invite a bunch of pop writers in to collaborate. And Jeff and I went one year for his World Beat Week. And every morning we would be assigned, I mean, every person would be assigned two different people to collaborate with and write a song that day. And we had to record that song at night, which you, you think most people take their time with songs and let them, you know, ferment over time and I'll get to it. And when you're under the gun like that and having to collaborate with people you've never met before, man, it just puts a whole new focus on it. And then once the first day had passed, we would do it again for five, six, seven days, something like that. And after the first day, when we had dinner, they would play all the songs that we had written and recorded the night before. Wow. You know, and there, there's not enough time to perfect anything. You're just slamming down your parts, and it's it's a good demo. And, man, you would hear your song come up, and everybody would be starting to slink down their chairs, like, oh, shit, here it comes. <laughs> but it was it was a really fun thing to do. I, I think doing it that way, though, you, you don't get a chance to – Overthink it. Yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've worked a lot just on a local level uh, producing other artists and it's so easy for them to play me their idea of a song from an outsider to just go, oh, you've overthought that, that bit there, just chop that, blah, 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 blah. And it's the same and you hear it a lot, people saying that their, their big hit was just an afterthought. The company wanted one more yeah. song and they went, oh, well, here, have this. And it yep. becomes the big thing, yeah? Do you, do you find that you've, you've been Steve Lynch in, in autograph turn up the radio was an afterthought. Yep. They, they did it while they were in the studio and I don't know, had a couple more hours to go and just knocked it out. And that was their hit. Cause at that point it's just like stream of consciousness. I think you're not overthinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people get too close to it themselves. Just, yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Um, I'd love to have you back yeah. on sometime again, if you're up for it. Uh, and sure. yeah, we'd love to do the, the gals show as well down the track, but, um, I, I thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, this is the last chance you're going to have to, to throw it at me and, and Jennifer. Um, oh, we get a couple of likes there. So folks, please, I'm, I am quite a new, uh, YouTube channel and I don't have the sub numbers there. I've got some ripper guests in, in the work. It's, it's amazing. He'll say Yes, if you just go about it the right way and ask the right people. So, Jennifer, I do thank you for your time. It's been great. Sure. And, Thanks for having uh, No problem. And people, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. <laughs>